0: At the recent American Society of Clinical Oncology meetings, Dr. Lawrence Wickerham presented the first results of the NSABP's STAR trial comparing raloxifene to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women at increased risk of developing breast cancer. I met with Dr. Wickerham to learn more about these findings, and he began by providing a background to the launch of this study.
1: The original tamoxifen trials in node-negative breast cancer patients by the NSABP began in 1981, and it became apparent during the course of that trial and publications of others that tamoxifen appeared to be effective not only in treating invasive receptor-positive breast cancer, but also had a substantial reduction in new primaries of the opposite breast. And actually, Dr. Fisher and Dr. Redmond had applied to the NCI to try to expand the scope of the B14 trial, expand the sample size, in order to look specifically at opposite breast cancers. I think it was a little premature to be thinking in those terms, and it wasn't really until '91 when it became apparent from the overview analysis that tamoxifen was effective for prevention that we applied as a research group to conduct the first breast cancer prevention trial, the P1 study, comparing tamoxifen to placebo. And that entered over 13,000 patients. The results were announced in 1998 and demonstrated that tamoxifen was highly effective in reducing the risk of primary invasive breast cancers. At that same ASCO plenary session, Steve Cummings reported on the results of the Moore trial, the initial study that raloxifene also appeared to have a reduction in primary breast cancers in a group of patients who were not at high risk for the disease. These were women with osteoporosis or prior osteoporotic fractures. But even in that population at low risk, raloxifene appeared to be a benefit to the point where the media was referring to it as a designer estrogen. And it came with the other potential benefit of no excess or apparent excess in endometrial cancers. This led to the head-to-head comparison of tamoxifen and raloxifene the STAR trial that began and began to accrue patients in July of 1999, all at high risk, all postmenopausal.
0: And why was it that it was just postmenopausal patients?
1: Although tamoxifen was highly effective in the treatment of receptor-positive premenopausal women, there was absolutely no information on roloxifene in premenopausal women to allow the STAR trial to expand to that population.
0: Can you summarize the findings from the STAR trial?
1: Well, I can, the primary objective was to compare tamoxifen to raloxifene relative to their effectiveness on the prevention of primary invasive breast cancer. And the results are clear that these drugs are equally effective in preventing this disease as in P1, the benefits appear to be primarily in reducing receptor positive breast cancers, but there was no increase in receptor negative disease. Across the group of patients who entered the trial, and these were postmenopausal women at increased risk using the Gale model, or women with a prior LCIS, there was no group that failed to benefit. The number of breast cancers occurring in both groups increased with increasing Gale scores, again, giving further validity to this Gale model. And we began then to look, obviously, at secondary endpoints. One of the main goals was to determine if raloxifene was as effective as tamoxifen, but with fewer side effects. And overall, the safety profile of raloxifene appears to be better. The primary hope was that it would not increase the risk of endometrial cancer. Although we didn't quite reach statistical significance, it's clear that this drug has less of an impact on the endometrium. The women coming into the STAR trial had greater than 50% prior hysterectomies, and that's not by chance. Not only did the women have a Gale model score given to them to qualify for the trial, we also gave them an estimate of their benefit and risk of entering the trial. And it's obvious that if you don't have a uterus, you're not at risk for endometrial cancer. So we were, in many ways, selecting for the absence of a uterus. But that 50% reduction lowers the power to demonstrate no excess in endometrial cancers. In addition, during the course of the trial, there were over twice as many hysterectomies for benign conditions in the tamoxifen-treated women, further reducing the ability to show a difference. Hyperplasia was 84% higher in the tamoxifen-treated women. Atypical hyperplasias were 12 to 1 tamoxifen to raloxifene. So all these are consistent with the lack of an endometrial risk associated with raloxifene. There are huge, three other large placebo trials in raloxifene-treated women that show no excess in endometrial cancer. So we're comfortable saying that there's no apparent increase. And with additional follow-up, we're continuing to follow these patients. We expect that we'll be able to answer that more definitively. There were also fewer cataracts and fewer thromboembolic events, DVTs and pulmonary emboli. Now, both of these drugs are CIRMs. Both were known to increase the risk of thromboembolic events, but this was the first real head-to-head comparison of tamoxifen and raloxifene, and it appears that raloxifene has a lowered risk of thromboembolic events lower than tamoxifen. So these things combine to make it a more attractive drug in the prevention of this disease.
0: Now, how can we tell from just the STAR data what the effect is of raloxifene in terms of endometrium as well as deep vein thrombosis compared to no therapy?
1: Well, there is not an untreated control group in this trial. You're correct. You can ask the same questions about how do we know it's reducing the number of invasive breast cancers as well. There, it's a little bit easier because we have the Gale model projections and the projections at this point in time are that there would have been 312 invasive breast cancers. In the tamoxifen group, there were 163, and in Roloxifene 168. So there we have a demonstrable way to reduce it. The issue of deep vein thrombosis and these other endpoints, we require some insight into the cross-protocol analyses, going back to our tamoxifen P1 placebo trial. So it's not perfect, but it gives us a pretty good insight. The rates of these things in the tamoxifen-treated populations are pretty well established. What about the incidence of DCIS? In the original tamoxifen placebo trial, there was a 50% reduction in DCIS and LCIS combined. And in this trial, we don't see that raloxifene is as effective as tamoxifen in the reduction of LCIS and DCIS. The magnitude of that difference is relatively small, and the clinical impact remains to be seen. It may have no clinical impact, but it is biologically intriguing. How could a drug be effective in preventing invasive disease but be less effective in the precursors of that invasive disease? And there's also another intriguing situation. Women who entered the STAR trial with a prior history of LCIS or atypical hyperplasia, either ductal or lobular, had equal benefit from the two drugs in preventing invasive disease. So again, there's something going on here that we haven't totally sorted out, but I doubt that it would be a decision to not use raloxifene based on just this DCIS and LCIS data. We've also begun to look more extensively at these individual patients. The non-invasive cancers that do occur appear to be very similar to that that we would expect in the general population. Most were diagnosed based on mammograms showing increasing calcifications. Most were small and allowing the option of a lumpectomy.
0: What do you see as the practical clinical practice implications of the STAR data?
1: Well, of course, this information is going to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. We hope that that will result in raloxifene being approved for this indication, that is breast cancer risk reduction, breast cancer prevention. This drug is far more attractive and practical than tamoxifen. And as a result, I think the results will be good news for postmenopausal women at increased risk. They're going to have another option, another chemo prevention option to prevent the development of invasive breast cancers. Tamoxifen, although the trials established proof of principle, hasn't been widely adopted for that purpose. We can talk about why that may be, but the facts are it hasn't been. Roloxifene, Avista, is already being used widely by the non-oncology community, the primary care providers, for the treatment and prevention of osteoporosis. And the estimates are over a half a million women are using this drug already in the United States today for those purposes. Those women tend to be older and tend to have a lower breast cancer risk than the group in STAR. And my expectation would be that the number of women receiving raloxifene will increase and it'll be an expanded population of those individuals.
0: You were mentioning the fact that tamoxifen hasn't been utilized as much for a risk reduction as maybe we thought it might be in 1998. Why do you think that is?
1: I don't think there's one single reason. It's probably a variety of things. Certainly, the drug was viewed appropriately as a cancer drug and known well to oncologists, but not so well to the primary care providers who are absolutely critical for preventive strategies, whether it be for cardiovascular disease or bone health or breast cancer prevention. And there were lots of press reports out there about the toxicities of tamoxifen And I think there was some concern that the benefit-risk may not favor tamoxifen. This was the first such drug on the market. And doctors are appropriately very cautious about doing the things that are right for their patients. It established the principle that this is indeed a preventable disease. Now we have a second trial that confirms that and allows for an additional option.
0: What's the next step for the NSABP?
1: We plan to move roloxifene ahead as our standard therapy at this point in time, and compare it to an aromatase inhibitor, letrozole, in the same population of women as STAR. Postmenopausal women at increased risk based on either the Gale model or a previous history of LCIS treated by excision alone. It's gone through peer review at the NCI and received a priority score higher than our P1 and STAR trials, so we were pleased by that. And we're now in the process of finalizing the protocol document We'll submit that to the NCI and we hope to be able to begin the trial, the accrual phase sometime this calendar year.
0: Now, also an aromatase inhibitor, in this case anastrozole, is being looked at in the United Kingdom being compared to placebo. What are the data from the prior trials in invasive disease that led to the concept of using AIs for prevention?
1: Right, it's continuing this theme, if you will, of looking at ways to modify estrogens and their effect on the breast. The CIRMs, the Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulators, are focused on the receptor itself in all likelihood, although the precise mechanism probably isn't established. Aromatase inhibitors, by reducing the level of estrogens, work at the ligand level rather than at the receptor. And in the large adjuvant trials, and there are a lot of them out there with different designs... The aromatase inhibitors are superior to tamoxifen in the treatment of breast cancer and also appear to be superior in reducing the risk of new contralateral breast cancers. So just as it's replacing tamoxifen as a treatment, we think it's a reasonable comparison to move it forward in a head-to-head comparison in the prevention setting. The data suggest a 35 to 50% or more further reduction in opposite breast cancers. And we're using letrozole in the traditional adjuvant setting, if you will, immediately after diagnosis. It is effective in reducing opposite breast cancers. Even more intriguing, the MA17 study, after the completion of about five years of treatment, showed a further reduction in opposite breast cancers by women who began letrozole at that point in time. We're also having a treatment trial in a duration study of letrozole. In essence, it's five versus 10 years of letrozole. So it makes for a nice compendium across all of our treatment and prevention strategies and will allow for our members to become very comfortable with the drug and also for us to develop a huge database, not only on its effectiveness, but also its safety. And I
0: guess the reason for the excitement is that when you talk about these reductions that have been seen in second breast cancers with the AIs, that's above and beyond what was seen with tamoxifen.
1: That's correct. The control arms in all of these trials, except the MA17 trial, were tamoxifen.
0: Can you summarize sort of what your take is on the side effects and toxicities of AIs versus tamoxifen and how you think that's going to play out in the prevention
1: setting? Well, we need to play it out in the prevention setting so we can say these things with some certainty. We've talked a good bit about the CERM type toxicities. The AIs, the main concern is relative to their bone health, and that sets up a real dichotomy of sorts. Reloxifene clearly benefits bone in postmenopausal women, reduces fracture risk. And the aromatase inhibitors, including letrozole, impact bone mineral density in an adverse way. It decreases, it increases the risk of fracture. So women coming into the trial are going to have to have baseline bone mineral densities and then follow during the course of the trial. We're going to be assessing their calcium and vitamin D intake at baseline. If it's low, we'll counsel them on the importance of either improving their diet or taking supplements of calcium and vitamin D. And should they cross a threshold relative to bone mineral density, we will strongly urge them to begin bisphosphonate therapy, most likely oral bisphosphonates, and then monitor the entire trial in that setting. One of the other potential side effects when you lower estrogen in postmenopausal women is an increase in serum lipids. And again, we'll monitor blood lipids coming in the door and exclude those with extremely high lipid levels at entry until they're treated, and then monitor it during the course of the trial Again, should their cholesterol or other lipids become out of the normal range, we would institute statin therapy as indicated. So although it's raloxifene versus an AI, we're going to have to monitor all of their drug intakes very carefully so that at the end of the trial, we'll be able to have a reasonable assessment of the overall picture of not only breast cancer prevention, but what the costs are relative to drugs and other activities that the women would be undergoing.
0: Any take from looking at the invasive trials in terms of quality of life on tamoxifen in postmenopausal women compared to the AIs, basal motor symptoms, you know, sort of daily kinds of symptoms.
1: There haven't been huge differences in quality of life in those trials. They've been studied, but not in massive numbers. Clearly, the vaginal dryness and vaginal irritation are different in the various drugs and dysperonia and as a result, quality of life relative to sexual activity, is one of the concerns with the AIs. In the P2 trial, in the STAR trial, we looked at quality of life issues very carefully, actually, in by quality of life standards, a fairly large group of individuals, and showed overall only minimal impact, no significant differences in the formal quality of life measures and only minor changes in symptoms. We would continue that level of scrutiny in the P4 trial, which we've tentatively named the STELLAR trial, trying to continue our astronomical theme. (laughs) A little pun.
0: That's true. STAR, STELLAR. That's good.
1: Yeah. Dr. Patty Gans from UCLA is the chair of our Behavioral and Health Outcomes Committee. They're looking very carefully at a formal quality of life measurement. And the group at Wake Forest that's headed by Dr. Sally Shoemaker will also be looking at cognitive changes in the two groups following the same testing strategies that we've used in P2 with our COSTAR trial. And those were the same instruments that were utilized during the Women's Health Initiative studies as well.
0: You're talking about therapies now, five years, and the B42 study we're going to look at beyond five years of you know, taking a medication every day. What do we know about patients' ability or adherence to taking this type of treatment?
1: Well, we published in the JAMA article on P2 the compliance adherence figures, and a number of the reviewers were somewhat shocked to see that only 68 to 71% of the patients remained on therapy at about four years. Those numbers are actually pretty darn good and are certainly better than you would see in the general population of oncology patients, much less prevention patients. We spend a fair amount of time and energy educating our physicians and our nurses and coordinators about the importance of compliance and adherence. One of the most important ones within the context of a clinical trial is you get to pick your patients a bit. So we try to identify those individuals most likely to be compliant with the regimen, not only taking their pills, but getting their follow-up exams and their mammograms and so forth. And then we institute a number of strategies to help, during the course of the trial, maintain that level of compliance. We design our trials with a built-in level of non-compliance, And in the STAR trial, we were substantially lower than we had originally expected. So that's good for the conduct of the trial. But clearly, you want patients to be taking their medications so that they can get the maximum benefit And so that the study results are as accurate as possible, not only for benefits, but also side effects and toxicities. Then taking that information and applying it to the general population, not in clinical trials, has become an area of interest of late. And there will be increasing attention paid to that, not only in prevention, but in treatment. As we have more and more oral agents in oncology, it's going to become all that more important for us to be thinking about the importance of maintaining our patients on their therapies.
0: Any practical suggestions to physicians and nurses taking care of breast cancer patients on long-term endocrine intervention, whether it's prevention or treatment in terms of trying to promote the patient to take their medication?
1: There are a variety of things. And the most important one is simply to ask in an open fashion whether or not they're having any difficulties taking their medication. Not making it threatening simply asking, and asking at each follow-up visit and reinforcing the importance of taking their medication as prescribed, and if there are difficulties, to announce those. Let us know if you're incapable for whatever reason, be it side effects or toxicities or economic issues. Those can be addressed, but not if they're not described.